your host, Bill Real. Welcome to another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real, and I'm grateful for the chance to sit down today with three friends of mine, three bright, uh, wise, incredible human beings. Uh, let's start, uh, introduce each of you. Uh, Jana Spangler, would you mind introducing yourself to the audience? I'm, uh, many of the listeners to this podcast will likely know you, but I think there'll also be a significant number that don't. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Um, thanks for having me here. Um, so I am a um, professional life coach and I work with Symmetry Solutions. Um, and I work with people who are dealing with um, faith transition and, you know, families and family systems and marriages who are affected by those kinds of transitions. Um, I'm also a graduate of the Living School, which is run by the Center for Action and Contemplation under the direction of Father Richard Rohr. So I've um, done a lot of study in contemplative traditions, um, Christianity, Buddhism, and, and others. And um, I live in Holiday, Utah, and mother of three kids. Love it. Love it. Jana, glad you could join us. Uh, Brittany Hartley, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, my friend. Yeah, so I live in Boise, Idaho. I'm the um, author of the book Mormon Philosophy Simplified. I recently got my master's degree in the future of religion, and I'm in a training program to do spiritual direction. So that's the direction that I'm kind of moving, and I live here in Boise with uh, my husband and four kids. Beautiful, beautiful. Thanks as well. Anthony Miller, you're going to round out the group. Uh, tell us uh, a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, my name is Anthony Miller. I live in Billings, Montana, and um, I'm an entrepreneur, education enthusiast, and financial advisor here. And um, about five years ago, went through a pretty acute existential faith crisis um, that has uh, turned into, um, uh, I would say, uh, a growth, an experience of growth. I'm a better human being, I think, uh, for what my experiences have been. Um, I regularly uh, participate in online uh, communities with regard to to topics about faith transition, thoughtfulness, um, improving interpersonal relationships, things like that. Um, I blog at unpackingambiguity.com, and I've uh, co-presented uh, with Jana and with another friend at Sunstone uh, several times. And uh, I've uh, been privileged to be on panels with uh, Britt and Jana in other settings as well. And I'm grateful to be here to talk about Jack Cornfield's book. Yeah, this introduction uh, to Buddhism, it's uh, Buddhism for Beginners by Jack Cornfield. It's going to be the uh, thing that we use kind of as the base uh, to have these conversations. And uh, what we thought we'd do, I think there's 12 of them total. Uh, they range about 45 minutes. And just so the audience understands, you can get this on Audible. It It is presented as a book, but it really isn't a book. It's Jack Cornfield standing in front of a, uh, a live audience, whoever whoever's sitting in that room with him. And he's explaining Buddhism uh, in, within 12 different sessions, again, that last about uh, 45 minutes each. And we thought we'd start today with uh, his episode number one, essentially, or presentation number one, uh, chapter number one as it's listed in Audible. And to talk about, I think the, the main premise here is the Eightfold Path, but I wanted to give each of you a chance to just talk about this chapter 
thoughts that came up, things that arose. And then as you can maybe hit on things that others of us have also connected with, uh, maybe we'll interrupt you and, and kind of throw out some new ideas as well and just try to create a vibrant conversation. So um, this idea of the Eightfold Path are these eight ways in which you act in healthy ways with the world around you. And I thought this introductory kind of chapter, as he kind of leans into this, um, he's talking about our senses. And one of the things I pick up on is that our senses really are this way. Um, they are really these doors to awareness. They're the ways in which we see, feel, think, taste, smell uh, the world. And um, I remember being in college and taking a world religions class and talking about Buddhism. And the idea that the instructor said was that, that you know, in Buddhism, you try to really begin by narrowing down what you are. Who are you? And he said, are you your arm? Like, if I cut your arm off, are you still you? And, you know, as you think about that, you go, yeah, if I lost my arm, I'm, I'm still me. And he goes, well, if we cut off your leg, are you still you? And, yeah. And he even said, like, if, if you can, um, I remember reading this in some other place where if they could stick you in a room, knock you unconscious, take out your brain, maybe just leave your head on so that you had your eyes and your, and your ears and your, and your, you know, taste and stuff and smell that if you were hooked up to an artificial machine, but didn't know it and you woke up out of surgery and all you are is your head hooked up to a machine and the doctor comes in and goes, Hey, how is everything? And you're like, Oh, everything's great. I feel good. I'm me. So even if you had everything from the neck down removed until you're notified that that's not there, you're still you. Um, and so the exercise was to get each of us to recognize that all we are is the observer inside our head. And and chapter one, dealing with this eightfold path is trying to get us to see that to be the best, healthiest human being that we can be during this time we have on earth, um, that we need to lean into right action or um, a sense of kind of wise action as we move throughout the world. Uh, any thoughts from you guys? Yeah. I mean, it strikes me that um, what he talks about is that um, all of the teachings of Buddhism um, and, and I like the way he talks about it, all of the teachings of the Buddhas, you know, it's not just the Buddha, but anyone who um, is able to, um, you know, get to this place of uh, more mindfulness within yourself and awareness um, is, is acting from their Buddha nature. But all of the words and teachings of all the Buddhas are, are about one thing, which is the practical path to human happiness or freedom. So there's one thing that really struck me about this Eightfold Path is that almost every one of these points leads back to this idea of freedom. So um, it's, it's, not, it's not about being free. from what? Like freedom from right. suffering, freedom from our vices, freedom from the things that trap us. Um, and I think most of us go through life kind of skimming over the surface of our lives and not a lot of really deep awareness of how we're acting and why we're acting. We have this amazing system of a subconscious system that runs a lot in our lives. Um, that's actually a blessing. And it can also lead us to act in ways that are not in our best interest. So this whole practice to me is about becoming more aware of what drives us so that we, that does allow us more freedom because whether we know it or not, we are trapped by automatic subconscious reactions to things in our lives. Yeah. And, and I want to just mention here, this idea that you're pointing out, which is when we have wise action in the world, it is sometimes easy in our uh, Western thought to think that what we're doing is benefiting the people that we're having wise action to, which we are. But as you're pointing out, the reality is that this is the the system being presented to bring 
peace and joy and uh, some level of healthiness inside us, right? Like it's about, it's about what I feel and how I move through the world and what that does for me. And by moving through the world with wise action or right action, I end up finding peace inside myself. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think it is like both of those things, right? Within yourself and within the world, because one of the, the basic tenets of this is that we are not separate from the world, that we are all connected. We're all interdependent. Yeah, I want to piggyback on something Jana said when she was saying um, how much we are driven by our kind of unconscious or subconscious desires. And, you know, as I study a lot of religions, Buddhism to me is the one that stands out for really being the best at attacking death and suffering head on and making that process really transformative rather than kind of going around it or being driven by our fears of death without ever facing it uh, head on. And I know um, I have a Buddhist friend here in Boise who, as part of his retreat, would actually meditate next to people who had died, you know, like a, a cemetery where the bodies were in different stages of decomposition, where you actually have to sit next to a human body and face your mortality head on, or you have to sit in your deepest suffering and without numbing and without going to all the things that we do to numb, you know, our negative feelings have to sit with that um, and watch it and see where we feel it in our bodies. And so I, what I really love about Buddhism is, is as we talk about death and suffering, um, because they're facing those things head on, uh, it can really, really transform your life in a way that, um, I really think other religions don't do as well. Yeah. I I also, Jana, when you mentioned, oh, you mentioned this idea that we're all interconnected. And I, I always, I'm always using this quote. You guys will get tired of it as I say it probably 10 times in all these recordings, but uh, reading Eckhart Tolle. And again, all these kind of wisdom teachers are somewhat connected in all of this. Uh, Eckhart Tolle says, we are the universe experiencing ourselves as a human for a little while. We, like we are alone. And I think we're more alone than we think we are, and we're more connected than we think we are. And juxtaposition of those two truths often occupies my mind in these deep rabbit holes as I'm watching a, a TV show or a movie and somebody dies a violent death and I contemplate my own death. And then I contemplate that my wife or I, one of us will take our last breath and the other person will be alone. And then I contemplate like how we say our friends love us, but in reality, your friends are always one moment away from not being your friends, right? And and so there is this disconnection between us human beings where you really are all by yourself in the universe and you are the universe along with every other rock, every other human, every other primate, every other insect. Like the universe started off 13.2 billion years ago with something and then it spread out. And so here we all are as an outgrowth of that. And so the, the universe is experiencing your consciousness and my consciousness. It is living out every possible reality. Any thoughts on any thoughts on on whether you guys wrestle with like how alone you are or how interconnected you are with with everything? Yeah, so I have so I have an experience and a story and a metaphor to share. So when I was struggling with uh, my existential crisis for my faith transition, I had several friends that highly recommended Noah Rochetta's Secular Buddhism podcast and and looking at Buddhism. And I couldn't understand 
uh, why or how that would be helpful for someone in an existential crisis. Because my perception of Buddhism was that it was uh, primarily a religious construct. Uh, you know, I thought of, you know, monks that have a haircut like mine, you know, who uh, <laughs> who do basic work, they beg for food, uh, all those kinds of things as a, as a religious practice is what my perception was. And, and what I didn't realize at the time that these principles that we'll talk about as we go through this book, um, Noah Roshetta talks about uh, the Dalai Lama suggesting that study Buddhism, he says, study Buddhism to become a better whatever you are. So if you're a Christian, study Buddhism to become a better Christian. If you're a human secularist, uh, study Buddhism to become a better human humanist, and so forth. And so in any event, my initial reaction was I was hesitant to study these things, even with the name secular or the word or descriptor secular in front of Buddhism, because I perceived that it was a different religion. And, and from the religious constructs that I came from before, that felt threatening to me, because if it wasn't the one true faith, it had to be origined in the adversary or Satan or something like that. So, so that was my experience. And then, of course, as I spent time studying Buddhism, as I, as I spent time listening to Noah Rochetta's podcast about uh, secular Buddhism and reading his book, as I read and listened to things from Eckhart Tolle um, that uh, have a lot of secular application and spiritual application of Buddhist principles into it, um, all those things really substantially helped me through my faith transition. So initially, that's my experience. And so for those of you that are listening to this thinking, I don't know that I want to get into Buddhism because it seems like it might be a different religious construct or something, um, I'd suggest maybe to consider that it's more than that. It's a way of being more mindful, a way of being more aware, uh, a, a different thought process or paradigm that can help you be a better whatever you are. So that's the experience. The second thing is a story. So my wife and I, uh, this month, we got a new dog. Um, it's, it's a rescue dog. It's a, a mix between a pointer and, American, and an American Staffordshire Terrier. Um, he's, he's pretty young. His name is Barry. Um, he's very excitable. Um, and, and when you would take Barry out and you would walk Barry, um, because he's pretty young and hasn't had a lot of training, he would pull on the leash and he, you know, dogs, uh, have a very enhanced sense of smell that's way more than their sense of sight. And so when it's windy and they smell things, they're overstimulated by everything around them and so forth. And, and we needed to figure out how to train this dog so when this dog would walk with us, the dog would be more connected and attended, attentive to us and engage with us as the person walking the dog so that the dog would heal. The dog would walk beside us instead of yank on the leash and constantly be excitable and pull and so forth with everything that they're doing. So the strategy in training a dog is is uh, so that they don't yank and pull on the leash, is to enhance the sense of engagement with the dog. You kind of walk back and then you turn directions and come forth and you call out to the dog. So the dog becomes trained to be more engaged and more aware with the owner of the dog and more attentive to, to the dog. And over time, what happens 
is the dog becomes learns to recognize that the greater attentiveness or engagement that the dog has with the owner, the calmer the dog is. The dog has a sense of peace because the dog isn't is is less distracted or isn't at all distracted about all these different smells and all these different things that are happening around and they feel like they need to yank and run and be distracted by everything because the dog recognizes as the dog is engaged with the owner the owner is going to worry about all those things and so the dog operates with a significant greater sense of peace and compliance and attentiveness and develops a love and engagement with the owner That's the kind of training that you do so that your dog doesn't yank on the leash. The metaphor is, I would say, as I would apply it to these kinds of principles that we're talking about with Buddhism, is that we as human beings can be distracted and worried and and have a lot of anxiety and all about all these different things. But as we practice mindfulness, we can be aware that as we're engaged and attentive to our being, the observant being that recognizes the voice in our head, that's thoughtful about the things that are happening around us and so forth, then we can live with more peace in our life. We can more greatly or intimately engage with the, that being, which is us, the universe manifesting itself through us as a being, and uh, and just be a lot more calmer and and and. And our body and our experience can, like the dog, heal to the mindfulness and the engagement with our being. I, I hope that's a helpful metaphor. But in any event, that's what we're dealing with, my I wife and I, it. with this new dog. Yeah, I like I like that too. Um, when I was talking about the time in, in college and how they were trying to say, you're not your arm, you're not, your, eventually they get to this idea that you're not your thoughts either. And as the dog is, you know, smelling something and his brain now tells him a story and now he's trying to chase down whatever that is, you're not your thoughts either. And so just as you're teaching the dog to pay attention to something else, uh, meditation kind of within Buddhism is getting us to pay attention, not only to our thoughts, but also the space in between our thoughts, which is the real us, that moment where there is nothing being said, nothing going on. And, um, it, it also leads to, as you've gotten this dog to calm down and to uh, behave in ways that are more productive to what you're needing that dog to be and to do, it it kind of gets me to want to gauge our conversation towards that freedom that Jana was talking about earlier. Like, what is that freedom? What what is what are they trying to what is what is Buddhism trying to point us to when it says, look, if you guys if you guys behave in wise ways in the world, if you use your senses in wise ways, if you if you respond to people and their moments and you respond to yourself and your moments in wise ways, what what is the freedom that we're trying to achieve? What does that look like, feel like? Is there a description of that by either any of you guys that that maybe the audience can kind of grasp onto? Well, something um I think about uh, you know, he he brought up the point if if everyone in the world could even do one of these things, like even a piece of one of these things in the Eightfold Path, our entire world would be transformed. And so, you know, it's not just, I think sometimes we think about Buddhism just being sitting on a mat and transcending your ego and becoming one with everything and, and drifting away, <laughs> you know, that I, I've seen, I've, I've 
read people, the criticisms of contemplative traditions that talk about it that way. We're just floating in the clouds and not dealing with reality. But if you, if you really get into this eightfold path, you recognize it's not just that it's also how we act, how we interact in the world and noticing, I mean, there are echoes of the 10 commandments in this in right action and um, in part of the, the, the eightfold path. So it's, it's living in such a way that we are free of the vices that grab us, the the greed, the thoughtlessness, the unkindnesses. Um, so, I, I mean, if you can even just imagine a world or a community where everyone was leaning into that kind of right action or, you know, right engagement with themselves and others, imagine the freedom that we would have, not having to lock your doors, not having to you know, worry about so much about our possessions, not worrying so much about how we situate. Um, it brings an immense amount of freedom. I think about a lot of the stresses I just have in my life as a suburban mom in Utah, you know, worrying about the comparisons, worrying about um, if I'm doing the right things with my kids. And, you know, there's, there's so much energy expended in things that at the end of the day don't really matter. Um, I just imagine an immense amount of freedom if I could follow even a piece of this eightfold path. Mm. For, for me, it's about um, this concept that he talks about later on, which is you're so true to yourself that you're living without regret. And that doesn't mean that if you were to go back in time, you wouldn't maybe do things different with the knowledge that you have now. Taking that aside, this concept of I I know that I'm mortal. I know that I'm going to die and I'm going to live so true to, to myself and my relationships and love and connection and all these things that, you know, you're, you're walking through life without regret because, uh, you know, we all identify ourselves with the dog. I want this. What's shiny over here? Who's doing this over here? And when you spend your life identified with the dog, instead of the person who maybe just wanted to go on a nice walk to a friend's house, well, then you've missed something. And that is, I think, the travesty that Buddhism is helping us trying to avoid is when you're on your deathbed and you say, I'm going to die. And I was so concerned with what everyone was thinking of me. And I was so wrapped up into my own thoughts and attachments that I really just suffered and I didn't live at all. And I would have done this totally differently. And that's, that's the real travesty of, um, of human life is when you look at the, when you're at the end of it and you realize you never really lived. So to me, by, you know, these principles help you engage your life in such a way um, that, that you're living without regret and that you're walking mindfully towards the idea of knowing that this is all impermanent, ourselves included, and that it gives you uh, the perspective to really do what you want to do with your life and uh, release that fear, fear of death and just kind of walk with freedom towards wherever your life is going. Yeah. I'm, <clears throat> I'm 42 years old. And I think the three of you are within um, that block of age, <clears throat> give or take a year or two, three. And um, I I'm struck as I entered being 40 that I became um, deeply aware of my own mortality as pieces of my body hurt a little bit when I get up in the morning and try to kind of take those first few steps uh, as, as pieces of me have little twinges or little, little pokes in my body. And I'm like, Oh, there's my heart. Maybe it's going to give out in here in the next five minutes. That's it. Like, I think there's some realization of how fragile life is 
And so I think Britt, you're, you're hitting on this idea that life, life comes to an end at some point, at least this consciousness as it is comes to some sort of end. And in though, in that last moment, how do we want to reflect on the life that we've lived? Was it a life well lived? And I too, uh, when, when we were talking here about freedom, I also kind of connect with that not having regrets, that if you act as your authentic self, if as you act uh, in a way that tries to be this wise action in the world, and we're going to get into this Eightfold Path here in a moment, that you get to go through life going like, look, that's the decision, that was the right decision to make in that moment with the information I had and with knowing the people around me and knowing everybody's heart. Uh, the best I could, like this was the best way to interact with these people. And so you get to go through life having a lot less regret and maybe at least for some periods of time, no regrets at all. Yeah. In the, in the lectures, in the book, I can't remember if it's, if he refers to it in the first couple chapters, but he refers to Viktor Frankl who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. He uh, was uh, in, imprisoned in a concentration camp during the Holocaust. And and um, in that book, uh, Viktor Frankl talks about examples of people who exercised freedom in spite of being confined to a concentration camp, and uh, as an example of what freedom might mean. And and I would I would say freedom might mean that um, instead of being controlled by a reactionary or programmed response to everything, or just living according to that continuously streaming voice in your head that, you know, leads you all over the place like the dog that does is not attentive uh, or engaged to their uh, owner. Um, freedom then would be living with a sense of thoughtfulness, mindfulness, and consciousness that we're choosing how we react to things, that we're choosing um, how we consider and observe things as opposed to um, being like the dog that's uh, just basically controlled and not really free um, when they're not engaged with their master, like we can be engaged with our own being and mind and thoughtfulness. Yeah. And reacting, right? Like the dog's just reacting. There's this idea that reacting is different than responding. Reacting is something happens and you just get thrown into whatever it is you react in. And responding is you actually sit with some awareness of what's going on in that moment. And you choose with some level of intent of how you're going to respond to a situation. Um, let's jump into this eightfold path and let's go over some of these, if not all of these, and maybe talk about each of them. Um, and each one starts with the word right or wise. You can substitute either one. I, I think I think right and wrong, I, I struggle with those words. I don't like that phraseology. I don't like saying something's right or something's wrong. I, I tend to frame most of life's choices in my worldview as healthy or unhealthy, responsible or, un, or irresponsible. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the right or wrong talk, so I'll probably stick with wise. But let's start with wise view. Um, any thoughts there? You've got eyes. You perceive the world with your eyes. You also perceive the world with other senses too. What is any thoughts on right view? Um, and and maybe some of these we don't necessarily have anything to, to share. We can jump into the next ones. But any anything that came up for you as he was discussing each of these? Um, yeah, one of the things that I loved that he talked about in this um, section was just getting down to simple questions. You know, we get so caught up in our lives and in our pursuits and the things that we think we need. Um, 
And so he gets down to some simple questions of, it kind of touches on your, your idea of living without regret, but did I love well? Did I live fully and wisely? Did I learn to be free? I've loved those questions that, that he brought up. It really distills down. Um, if I'm, if I'm thinking about my day and how I'm going to go about my day and I hold those questions in my heart, I, I know I'm going to act very, very differently. Um, so it's basically this gets down to this question of what do I want to do with the life that I've been given? Yeah, and I would and I would add to accept that there are consequences uh, for our actions. So if I if I hold the paradigm that the purpose of life is to strive to make a positive difference in the lives of others while I'm here, as well as to have made a positive difference for the people who I leave behind after I'm gone. The paradigm is one of choices and consequences, um, as opposed to it's it's a response, it's a thoughtful and conscious engagement with things. Yeah, he mentions karma, and, and he, you know, I think most of us in this Western ideology, we we think karma means if I do something good to somebody, then the universe automatically does something good to me. And he says you don't have to think of it that way. That there's this idea that. That karma is essentially that when you operate with wisdom in the world and you have these kinds of wise behaviors or these wise responses uh, to the world in front of you, that you tend to make the world a better place and hence you are going to receive more good from it, not because the universe owes you something, but because you're naturally creating an environment around you where people, one, trust your behavior to be authentic and to be wise. Um, and so the people around you tend to uh, feed off of that and come back with their own step up in their own behaviors as well. And that the world just tends to be healthier, um, at least in the space you're in, when any one of us does that in our world. I think it's really interesting how, um, how quickly with human nature that we turn karma into prosperity gospel. Because when we think of a concept like prosperity gospel, we kind of think of like mega churches, you know, call this number and God will bless you and that kind of thing. But if you go to a Buddhist country, um, you see how quickly just as humans that, you know, the Buddhist temple becomes the place where you go and you make an offering so that your business will succeed or so that, xyz and it's just so interesting that wherever you go with human nature will take something uh that's really about being and the blessings of being and we'll try to turn it into something transactional that we can kind of control that if i do this then this will happen to me and it's so interesting to see that that appears not only in you know abrahamic religions but it really shows up in buddhism too um and so it's just this it's just this interesting part of human nature of something that we do um when really the call is to a kind of being a kind if you be and you experience the world in this more wise way um you know you cannot help but deepen relationships you cannot help but experience more freedom not because of a transaction or not because the universe or god owes it to you um but because that's just the way that you're walking in the world yeah, it really, for me, it speaks to that um, idea of just the natural consequence of things. It's not that I, yeah, like the prosperity gospel or or the right or the wrong. It's more about what you put out into the universe does have a ripple effect and recognizing that and understanding that. 
Yeah. To the listeners who are listening to this episode, the idea here is that as we get into these 12 presentations, that each of you are going to have laid out for you the, the strategy, essentially, to begin to wake up to all of this and to begin to have it be easier and easier. And I, I think with the three of you, and I can certainly say so in my own life, it has gotten easier and easier, not easy. I still, I still mess it up all the time, but it's gotten easier and easier to have right intention, which we'll talk about next and to um, slow down and to sense moments. And instead of reacting to them to respond to those. And I think it's diving into this substance of Eastern thought that, that gets us there. And those thoughts are, as, as you guys are pointing out, those are prevalent in other religions, including Western religions as well. Um, I think probably all through the history of humankind, uh, these ideas have surfaced in order to get us to, to be happier with ourselves and to uh, find some degree of peace. But talking Can about- Can I say something oh, about that, Phil? Yeah. Um, just it's just an, uh, an observation in my studies with the Living School. Um, one of the things that I noticed, and I noticed this echoed in this first uh, this first lecture of um, of Jack Cornfield is you notice that he he quoted the Buddha, but he also quoted Sufi masters. He quoted Thomas Merton, who, for those who don't know, is a contemplative Christian monk. Um, and I, I I noticed in my studies that it seems like these contemplative branches, you know, Sufi is the contemplative branch of Islam. Um, Kabbalah is the contemplative branch of Judaism. There's the contemplative branch of Christianity. These contemplative streams seem to have more in common with one another sometimes than they do from the tradition from which they spring, right? Um, and so I find that that really interesting because I think so often the human nature that Brittany was talking about leads us to uh, doing things in a more transactional way. And I think that's the way more of the mainstream of those religions, they, they tend to want to codify and have the right thought, have the right way of doing things. But I just, I found that interesting that, um, you know, this is Buddhism for beginners, but he's quoting all kinds of contemplative masters from different traditions. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good. I love it. I love that. Yes. He's pulling in these ideas that are overlapping that are found in all these traditions. And I think, I think when a teacher does that, they build a level of trust that they don't have an agenda, right? That is unhealthy, that they're not really trying to pull you to uh, have right beliefs, but instead try to get you to kind of discover principles and, and change your life. Um, so I value that a lot. The, the next one here is this idea of wise intention. And I'll just start off by saying, for me, it was it's this idea that on the first half of life, I'm not only constantly pretending to be an idea of me that is good enough to fit in with everyone around me, but I'm, I'm also trying to manipulate the world to be what I want it to be. And I'm, and I'm constantly trying to get my wife or my kids or my coworkers or the kids at school, or I'm, I'm trying to get everybody to show up in a way that I get to be happy and feel like my world is good in front of me. And and what you find is at some point, if you're waking up and you're you're developing some degree of inner wisdom, is you realize that's kind of fruitless. The world is constantly going to show up in ways that you don't like, and you're constantly having to work your rear end off to try to push it away or to grasp at it and keep it from going, and it never really works anyway. And so for me, wise intention is just sitting back and going, let's let the world happen the way it happens. And rather than me 
having some unhealthy concepts such as trying to manipulate or trying to coerce or trying to shame or guilt somebody or something into doing what I want it to do is just to take the world as it is and to respond in ways that try to encourage the world to show up as it does. And it doesn't mean <clears throat> that doesn't mean that you have to sit back and do nothing, but that you have this ultimate desire for everyone to feel good and happy and peaceful for nobody to be necessarily inconvenienced or out of place and to move through the world, trying to help the collective uh, essentially enjoy the world as it's opening up in front of them. Any thoughts there? My thought would just be as you're, as you're saying that um, it doesn't say, you know, wise result or wise ends or wise, you know, consequence you know the the focus was on the intention because it's separating what can i control and what can i not control and that if you're constantly consumed with the things that you can't control it's literally a prescription for how to be unhappy in your life and so by focusing on you know i cannot control this relationship or this person in this relationship but i can control um how i show up for that person and how i let my walls down and how i lead with vulnerability and love and try to see that person if and but I cannot control you know how I want that relationship to be or how I want them to think about me or how I want them to feel about me um so me for me the right intention is letting go like you said Bill letting go of that control piece and just focusing on what you can control and just kind of letting the rest go because everybody else has in the entire world has its own kind of conscious decisions that you can't control. That's beautiful, Britt, because anytime you're focused on the conclusion, the ending, you're going to be manipulating the world in front of you, right? Like anytime 100%. you're like, well, this is, this is the result I got to have. I've got to have yeah. this result. Then you're, then you're going to operate in ways that are not, uh, that are not healthy. Yeah. So, um, he talks about compassion quite a bit being driven by compassion and, um, and I, I love that. That certainly ties into ideas of Christianity in terms of being driven by love or saying that God or divinity is love or manifest in love. I would add some nuance in terms of wise intention to include gratitude. And I'll try to be brief and share a story of one of my most powerful spiritual experiences. I was serving a mission in Barcelona, Spain. It was toward the end of my mission. I was experiencing some distress over... Uh, being my natural tendency of being a perfectionist. I was looking at shortfalls. I, I, I had accomplished quite a bit, but I wasn't quite sure whether the offering of my mission would be worthy to Heavenly Father. Would he be able to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant? And so I fasted and I prayed um, to find out whether the offering of my mission was an acceptable offering to Heavenly Father. And after a few days of this, um, we were visiting this family that we had recently baptized. And uh, toward the end of the visit, the, the woman um, asked us to stay for a little bit longer. And she went and got her journal and she brought it out to me and she had me read her journal entry for the day of her baptism. So I read this journal entry 
and was very moved by her experience of that day. And in that moment, this was the significant experience to me. I felt like I received an answer to my prayer that this life is about gratitude for the opportunity to participate in the lives of others. And if I was really seeking this validation of whether my offering was good enough, that actually might be a little bit more about pride and about me and not about others. And and that was a significant spiritual experience when I felt like I received that answer that this life is about gratitude for the opportunity to participate in the lives of others. And so if I were to add nuance to wise intention, it would be in, dish, in addition to suggesting that life and the things that we can do can be about nourishing and developing compassion for others, I would add the nuance and suggest that we can also be driven by gratitude for the opportunity to participate in the lives of others. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. Good stuff. One of the things I I picked up in this this little section from Jack Kornfield, I kept hearing him talk about questioning. And I think this is such an important attitude to have with this is this attitude of curiosity, of humility. You know, Buddhists talk about beginner's mind um, and approaching things, our habits, the ways we interact with people with curiosity. I mean, how often am I interacting with my family members? um, And, you know, they say something and I just assume I know exactly what is happening in this situation. And then I'm reacting to something that may or may not even be reality for that other person that I'm interacting with. It's so important to bring curiosity to our own lives, to the way we interact, and curiosity about all of the situations we're in, curiosity about others. You know, in Christianity, it's becoming like a little child. You know, this this is an idea that runs through the wisdom streams, but um, I, I find that to be really, really an important thing to to cultivate in any any kind of a mindfulness place is to watch our own judgments, watch our own assumptions, watch our certainties, and to enter more of our lives with this, this uh, humility and curiosity. Mm, I like that too. Um, Right speech. So there's this idea, right? No lying, no telling one person what another says about them to cause discord, no, no causing kind of harm with our words. Uh, Any thoughts from the three of you on right speech or what that means to you or how you've, how you've moved through the world, either, either kind of burning bridges and maybe done some harm or um, maybe how you've done it in really positive ways that have helped others or made space for others to, to show up to. This was a big one for me. Um, This why speech has been a big part of, of my journey and a place where I really turn to these mystical kind of wisdom places to help me sort through. So for a time um, in my own kind of faith journey, um, I had a faith transition from a from a traditional religion uh, about 10 years ago. And maybe about five years ago, I got really stuck. And it was about a year or two where I f- couldn't figure out the right way to talk about God or this kind of I was so touchy with even the word God that I just really got stuck on this question of when I'm talking about spirituality, how do I connect with people, but, but say the right thing? Because when I use the word God, it has so much baggage, or if I use something else, then I'm not connecting to them. And I just got so stuck in like, how do I, 
how do what's the right way to describe all of these human spiritual experiences? Um, what is the right language to um, discuss those things so that I can move forward a little bit and continue to have dialogues? And I was really stuck. And so I actually um, have a, a Sufi master that I study under. I'm ordained in a in a Sufi tradition. And what really helped finally break this open for me is that when you speak from being, from a place of being, the problem goes away. And and that's truly what happened with me because I was really in my head about when do I use the word God and when do I maybe use a different word and how can I explain this and in a way that feels authentic but also connect to others without lie- feeling like you know I'm lying to them by using this language and I just got all all tangled in knots and the approach of Sufism is that most religions go from a grand story you know here's the story of Christianity here's the story of whatever and then it goes to commandments and then it goes to being and it goes in that order and so Sufism flips it around that if you start with being and if you start with that kind of soul space, Buddha nature, heart space, and then you go the other direction where the commandments work themselves out and you don't have to use the commandments to get to being, you use being in order to figure out how to act in the world. And that switch in my brain really helped me be able to continue to have conversations with people about spiritual things because I am trying in my intention uh, to connect with a person and also be authentic. And that if I really dig into my, to my being, um, I kind of know what to say already. And I don't have to have a prescription on how I talk about these things or the right word for these things. And really it just becomes an issue of translation. You know, so many times when we talk to people, if you want to say soul, or you want to say Buddha nature, or you want to say your innermost, you know, consciousness, a lot of that is just translation. We're just trying to find words to describe human experience. And so for me, that that switch of, of, of being first and then, then allowing the speech to come really fixed all my tangles that I was having when I was uh, in dialogue with other people and worrying if it was the right way to say it, it just solved it on its own. And I think that's really what he's talking about, that if you, if you, uh, if you start from a place of right intention, really connected to yourself, then you don't have to have a prescription on speech where, you know, don't lie. Well, sometimes you do, you know, some, sometimes we do, and it is the right thing to do. And so you don't have to go into that prescriptive way of how do I speak? If you, if you do it from a place of deep awareness, it just. Mm, out. Mm, good stuff. Um, any so, other thoughts from you too? Yeah, so actually Jana has really helped me uh, in this area um, in discussions that we've had. So in the faith tradition that I came from, there was a lot of intermingling of objective truth, truth meaning something is actually and accurately what it's represented to be, if that's the meaning that you attribute to truth. But truth could also be something that's useful or something that's good, or something that has beauty in it. So there's different meanings for truth. Jana shared with me this idea that there is objective truth, like two plus two equals four. And then there's subjective truth that is more experiential. Uh, and and from the tradition that I came from and that Jana has come from, there was all this blending of what truth meant 
subjective, objective, and and whether it's accurately what it represents itself to be versus useful or to have meaning or beauty and so forth. By being able to untangle all that blending, it's helped me with regard to wise speech into talking about subjective truths with le- with non-dualistic language. To, to talk about experiences that people have or the meaning that I attribute to this subjective experience is this or something like that. That wise speech helps untangle that and it allows me to speak and hold more grace for people who have a, a set of subjective truths that are experiential to them that might be different to mine and to be more respectful uh, for others in that non-dualistic uh, expression. Mm. Um, I In this right speech, I thought about, um, this for me had echoes for those of you who have read the four agreements of the, the agreement that says be impeccable with your word. It means something so much more than the words we say, right? Although words are incredibly powerful. Um, Jack Cornfield shares a story about that, about the impact of how, how, um, how powerful words can be both positive and negative. Um, But it also encapsulates more than just the words we say, you know, he quotes Gandhi as saying that my life is my message. You know, it, it, it's, it's bigger than just the words. It's also, how are we orienting the words that we're saying? And sometimes we flatten this out to be just honesty in the West and honesty can be incredibly damaging. You know, you think about brutal honesty um, can be very hurtful. Um, what what this is speaking to in wise speech is what are my intentions? What what am I trying to convey? And how am I doing that from that deep being that that Britt is talking about? Um, you know, am I speaking what is authentic? Am I speaking what is true? Am I speaking gently and not harshly? Am I not trying to manipulate? I mean, so often. Uh, there are a lot of us who are manipulative without even recognizing that we're manipulative in the words we say. Sometimes it's just driven by the fact that I want to be acceptable or I want to be liked. And so I'm editing what I'm saying to get that particular outcome rather than just showing up as myself and, um, and saying what is real, but also with an intention to communicate in non-harmful ways. Yeah, he he mentions that idea of truth and helpfulness. Like he says, we should be truth tellers, but we should use truth to build up and help humanity. It's easier to be kind and wish good on a thousand people in a meditation than it is to be kind and helpful to one person in real life. I thought that was kind of a, a cool little insight. Um, I'll just wrap up kind of this this t- uh, specific point um, in this terms of of. Uh, right speech or wise speech by saying that you one of you guys mentioned, I think it was either Anthony or Jana mentioned earlier, like making assumptions. One of my biggest flaws and one of the things I struggle with the most in others as well is this idea of everybody has a right to their story about what's inside their head and about what their motives are for what they're doing in the world. All we see is their action. And often when we humans see actions, we automatically label with assumptions what's going on on the inside of another human. And when someone does that to me, it doesn't feel good. And when I do it to others, it doesn't feel good. And so for me, part of this wise speech is to make space in every conversation that what you see and what you think is underneath that to recognize you also 
could be just as easily wrong as you are right. And to give people through your words a safe space to name their own story and to take their story at face value, unless unless somebody is so unhealthy that it is apparent that they are always lying and always manipulating, if they're just an average human being, to give them the benefit of the doubt and to trust their story. And it's okay to ask clarifying questions and try to gain context, but not to not to tell another person what their motives are or what's going on in their head. My wife and I are constantly having to slow each other down and go, whoa, whoa, hold on a minute. You just said, you just said that what I'm doing is this thing. And I'm telling you, that's not what I'm doing. That's not what's going on. I'm sorry. My behavior looked like that, but here's what was going on. Here was my motive. Here was my thought process. And when you give people space to have that to begin with, rather than them having to stop you, you're, you're, you're acting in a way that you've not added extra layers that now need to be untangled as well. And then the other thing I want to just add quickly is that we ought to all recognize, because this will come in very helpful later on in these 12 presentations, we ought to recognize language is a modern invention by human beings to apply stories to the things we feel in the experiences that happen in front of us. And that in reality, we feel first, we perceive something going on in the world first, and then our brain only as a modern adaptation begins to assign a story to that thing. Um, For instance, I'll just give one example, and I'll probably use this again later on. When it comes to trauma, we're all receiving trauma. We're all handing out trauma in this world. And we have all these stories to it about how unhealthy it is or how wrong it is or how bad it is or whatever. The reality is the trees outside are also traumatizing each other. The little baby tree is trying to grow and the other tree next to it is so big that it it blocks out all the light and the baby tree is traumatized and maybe it dies or maybe it grows up unhealthy. Maybe it doesn't look well. It doesn't have the ability to assign a story. It's just a tree and it's just living or dying. Um, But we humans... Uh, no other species really does this exactly as we do. Our vocal cords allow us to make a lot more sounds, which then allows us to tell a lot deeper and more complex story. We're assigning stories after the fact. You feel a feeling first, you name it second. And I think that'll come in deeply handy later on. Any other thoughts from you guys before we move on to the next one? Just, I just want to say like that, that last thought where the experience is first, the experience of being human is first, and then kind of our vocal cord mumbo jumbo we place on top of it. And that was just a huge distinction that I had to make in wanting to do spiritual work with people because you want to be authentic, but you also have to realize that, you know, the experience is first and I can relate to that with with whatever wrapping paper you're using, whatever language you're using to put on top of it. And we can kind of bypass some of that, those language distinctions and really get to, I'm a human experiencing these things. Do you also experience things like this? And that's where you can really have deep connections when you let go of, of, of where you can get tangled up with language. And um, that was just really important when you continue to do spiritual work with people. Um, that that was a really important piece for me. Yeah. And, and the other side of the coin is to notice that language always, I don't mean sometimes, language always falls short. There's some degree at which language is a tool that we developed to retroactively apply to something we felt or experienced. And it's the best tool we've got but it also is imperfect. And so in every conversation, for instance, when I'm sitting with my friends two nights ago and we're watching a stand-up comedian special and I am 
I'm one of these folks who's always sitting in the room and watching humans interact and trying to just watch the behavior. What I notice is we're we're all laughing at certain spots. Now, some of us don't think certain things are funny and others of us think that thing is hilarious. So sometimes somebody's not laughing and somebody else is. But even in the moments where everyone in the group is collectively laughing at a stand-up comedian going through his shtick and making somebody laugh, it ought to be apparent, and it isn't, that we're not all laughing at the same thing. The thought process, the story in our head about what is funny. Comedians tend to, do, the good comedians tend to do a beautiful job of connecting all of the things we think are funny in that moment to this story so that we're all laughing at the same time, but we're not all laughing at the same thing. And if everybody had time to just stop and say, what was funny about that? Everybody would have a different spin on what it was. Um, and so when you recognize that when you're talking or when others are talking to you, it's the best we have and we get approximately close at times, but that everybody is also misunderstanding each other in that same moment. Okay. The next one is right conduct or action. Any thoughts from you guys on that one? I really, I really felt it helpful the way he described things. He, he talked about uh, he didn't use the word dysfunction, but in terms of conduct or wise conduct or action, he talked about, you know, have any of you had unthoughtful or dysfunctional sexual relationships or re- other kinds of relationships with others? Or And then he talks about killing, you know, or not killing and so forth. And I thought the way that Jack went through and described these things was insightful and gave me an additional point of view that I hadn't really seen in others. So initially, my point of view is this idea of Buddhism was uh, one of primarily sexual abstinence. Um, but that's not how he talked about it. He talked about thoughtfulness and healthiness in, in sexual relationships. When he talked, he gave examples and talked about not killing. And I always thought, well, maybe there's this idea in Buddhism that like you don't kill a fly or a cricket, you know, or a roach or something like that. And I'm like, well, that's crazy. It's like just a roach. Like you, you kill it because it's, it's a roach. But um, the way that he talked about it, the, in, the insight that I got was to be consciously aware and present about what is happening around me and the life and the energy that exists in things. And so to see an insect walking across the sidewalk and choosing to not step on the on the uh, insect to kill it is just as much of an experience of being present in the moment and aware of what's happening in our surroundings and recognizing that there's life in that insect walking across the 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 sidewalk as much as this idea of, of respecting the energy in life that it exists in all things. It, I don't know if I'm explaining it well, but it was like an additional paradigm that I got from his conversation uh, about wise conduct or wise actions. I was just sitting at a picnic table last night talking to a person who their career is to take care of animals and to procure from older folks or people who are terminal who care about animals to procure donations towards a charity that provides help for the animals. As she's talking, I'm sitting at a picnic table and this little bug is on the table and I don't see him. So I'm talking to her and I look over and I see the bug and I immediately squished it (laughs) and it hits me. Like I'm, I'm struck by, I just reacted. And instead like that bug wasn't bothering me. 
it wasn't gonna it wasn't gonna be in my way it wasn't gonna get on my skin it was far enough away I, I it was just gonna do its thing I didn't need to do that and if I would have just spent an extra eighth of a second just thinking and going like hmm how do I want to you know I wouldn't have done it I would have just let the thing go but instead there's one less bug in the world because uh, because I did I reacted and and I think that's the point you make like if you have mice in the home you have to set mouse traps you're not gonna let them run wild you have to do what you have to do but there's so many times in the world where the the life form isn't inhibiting you, bothering you. It isn't preventing you from living your life. And yet you still, to some degree, go out of your way to cause harm to it. And and we don't need to do that, right? Yeah, absolutely. One, one of the things, you know, I mentioned earlier that I, I, I heard echoes of the Ten Commandments in this section. Um and I'll, and, but I'll complicate that, right? I think in, in Western Christianity and certainly in the Christian stream that I come up from, um, there's kind of this, well, don't kill, don't steal, because it's it's wrong and, you know, you just don't do that. And, you know, we can kind of think of some some reasons and ill effects from it. Um, but it, it again, I it just strikes me that with this, the way that it is held here in Buddhism, it's so much more than that. It, 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 all of these things come down to our intention. It's not just what we're doing in the world, but it's, it's the space we occupy while we do it and our intention and our, our compassion and our love for the world. And so, um, you know, it's not just not stealing. It's also being generous. It's sharing what we have, um, you know, with uh, killing. It's not just each other. It's not just people. It's having this deep regard for all of life. Um, and it's also so complicated that I, I find it fascinating that two of these things uh, that he talks about with refraining from sexual misconduct and also refraining from the misuse of intoxicants. These are two things that in so many of the streams in Judaism and Islam and Christianity, it's just a hard no. As Anthony said, it's just a hard no. And we don't really learn how to necessarily interact with these things in a healthy way when it's just a no or only when you're married or, you know. So um, we, we, we tend to not get the depth of understanding around those kinds of things. And when we don't learn to have adult conversations, you know, I deal with people who are changing their minds about their relationships to these subjects all the time. And I'm always struck by how new this conversation is for sometimes adults in their thirties, forties, fifties, and they don't know how to talk about sexual conduct. They don't know how to talk about what is really wise when it comes to intoxicants. So um, I, I thought there was a lot of wisdom in his approach of um, not using intoxicants to just go to sleep. Um, you know, using our, our sexual energy for good and not for ill and not in ways that are um, aggressive or just, you know, power dynamics, but actually using it for connection and love. So I, I, I just found some richness in this. It adds such a depth to the way that I was raised thinking about these subjects. Yeah. It, it seems as those, those two subjects are the most taboo in the spectrum, right? Drugs and, uh, and sexuality. And yet, even even each of us in the relationships we have take somebody in their primary partner. Um, the idea that you and your spouse, you and your girlfriend, you and your boyfriend, the idea that you are this, you think the same way about those two subjects is isn't true. And I think more in those two subjects than anywhere else, at least off the top of my head, 
we are constantly making it known the box that our partner needs to fit in. And we're manipulating and shaming them to be in that box. And what happens if we open up a safe space for that person to open up and show us their insides and go, hey, here's here's what's really going on in here. Here's what it really looks like. What do we do with that? Um, I, I think on those two subjects there, and, and when it's and when it's those big subjects that are taboo, when it's those big subjects, you have to confront the standard emotions in much bigger ways. And I think that that wrestle becomes deeply um, hard and difficult for people who aren't ready for that. And I also think it facilitates incredible growth when both people do make safe spaces to have those conversations. Britt, you were going to say something? Yeah. So I, I, the addiction piece was the piece that stood out for me also. And if you come from any religion where the addiction has been clothed with the word sin, you're going to have some really unhealthy narratives and just how mind blowing it is when you come from a place where this is wrong, God tells you not to, then you're internalizing shame and then you're binging privately and then it breaks yourself apart. I mean, it's just, it just can get so ugly when you clothe all this in sin, especially it's uh, kind of an angry God kind of kind of stuff. And so there's just one question that just blows it open. And that's just checking in with yourself and saying, why am I wanting to numb and check out right now? Why am I wanting to be asleep? Because something is happening. Something is coming up on me that is so strong and powerful. I, I want to numb out because it's so much. And that simple question of, of just curiosity, like why do I want to eat an entire bag of Oreos and just check out right now and just exploring that does not mean that you never eat an Oreo. It just means, oh, I just got off a phone call with my mom and I'm feeling some heavy feelings and I'm just going to sit with it for a second and I'm just going to name it and I'm just going to have a relationship with it and I'm just going to uh, sit with it and notice that I'm not going to die that it's a feeling that I'm experiencing sensations in my body and it's going to be okay. And then all of a sudden the desire to just completely numb out um, goes away on its own because you are curious about what was driving it. And now you have a conscious relationship with whatever was driving that behavior. And I, I just love that. I mean, it's just a little switch, but it can be so transformative where you're really digging into why we do what we do and not just saying this is a sin and it's wrong. And then we feel shameful and then it just doesn't help anyone. And, you know, gosh, of all the things that we could do in Christianity, that little switch could really save a lot of people because we just get really, really uh, wrapped up into the sin narratives when it's wrapped around addiction. So are you dunking your Oreos? Absolutely. And they're and double stuff or nothing. But I try not to eat a whole bag because that means that I'm trying to maybe avoid feeling some feelings. <laughs> yeah. And maybe I should just sit and feel some feelings. And that's a phrase that I use with my husband. Like, you know what? I need to feel some feelings right now. <laughs> and I'll talk to you later. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Um, just a few more. So we got four more to kind of touch on really quickly. Right livelihood. I'll just say I work as a manager of a pawn shop. Um, I am constantly, it, it's... It is a industry that that I'm part of that constantly is 
to some degree taking advantage of helping out too, but also taking advantage of those who have the least amount of access to resources. Uh, somebody brings me their TV, they borrow a hundred bucks, they come back 30 days later, they pay 120 to get their TV out. Um, we have people who have pawned things and paid on them month after month after month, never getting their thing out. They've paid for their TV four times over. Um, and the TV still sitting in my warehouse. Uh, this was the one as Jack was talking that I had to really sit with and go, what, what can I do differently? Do I need to just put in my two week notice and go find something else to do? Um, and I'm wrestling with that right now. I'm not even gonna, I'm not even gonna comment on that. Cause I think sometimes we're doing the thing we're not supposed to be doing in a sense, and maybe we enjoy it. Maybe we're good at it. And, uh, Maybe we have to sit with how do we want to show up in the world differently and start working that direction. But any thoughts from you guys on right livelihood? Yeah, I mean, I think this one is complex. It's a complex and it's individual um, looking at how our professions um, may be assisting in systems of oppression and, um, you know, just there are so many systems that are good things. Our food delivery system is it's good to be able to feed lots and lots of people. And there is a lot about it that is also problematic for our environment and for, you know, all kinds of problems with it. And it's easy, I think, as an individual to not really think about how we, how our little piece in the cog in our complex society um, can aid or, or help or, or harm in all of those systems because those systems feel so big. So this one, I just kind of get overwhelmed when I think about it because I don't even know how to break down all of the systems of oppression that exist, you know, our healthcare delivery system, our, our penal system. I mean, you could go on and on. There is so much that is broken and hard and wrong. Even our education system, some of these things that are actually really good at their core have turned into some, there's some real evils connected to them. So it, it's such a huge discussion on all of our economic systems and, and everything else. But, but it, it, I, I appreciate the reflection you have, Bill, and just it, it, it's caused me to do some reflection on what I do in the world and how, how I do it. Because even if I'm trying to do good, which I, I feel like my profession, I, that's my core reason yeah. for doing it, mm -hmm. there are definitely ways I can, I can perpetuate harm in the ways that I even hold my profession. So I, I appreciated thinking more deeply about that. Oh, beautiful. Okay. Anything else? Otherwise I'll move on to the next one. Cause we're kind of closing out on time. Um, next one is right effort. Uh, I think that's the idea that you're always leaning in, right? Like you're always, you're always trying to move about doing good, reducing suffering in the world that you're not being lazy, that you're not riding on the backs of other people's work, that you're doing your fair part. Any thoughts there? I also had the thought of kind of when effort becomes too much. And I had, I was listening to another podcast. Ooh, yeah. I was talking about how Carl Jung um, talked about fanaticism and that whenever you find fanaticism in others or in yourself, it's coming from a place of ego and it's also being driven by a fear, right? There's a deep fear going on that if the world is not this way, I'm not going to be okay. And like, I need to put everything into whatever the thing is and it can be anything. Right. And so I love the idea of like um, watching yourself as far as 
what things am I not putting enough effort in? Like this relationship is really valuable to me and I haven't put any effort into it lately. And then also watching kind of the other end of the spectrum also, which is I'm spending a lot of time uh, really into into this political thing or into this kind of, I've even seen this with like, um, you know, homeschoolers or whatever your thing is. And it can be so intense that it can become a form of, of real fanaticism. And when that happens, kind of checking in with yourself as far as what are some repressed doubts that I'm feeling? Why am I so drawn to this thing? And I want it at, at 100 um, because that can also reveal um some deeper fears going on that you're not facing or some nuance that you're not ready to handle that maybe you need to start to sit with that kind of thing. And so it's just kind of gauging uh, back and forth. What things am I not giving enough attention and effort towards and what things am I getting a little bit too intense with because there's some fears there that I need to uncover and just kind of sitting in that, in that middle way space of I'm putting effort into the things that uh, are important to me for what I want my life to be. And that's just that constant inner dialogue with yourself. And maybe that you're overextending yourself and now it's time for some self-care, right? Like maybe you've gone too far. Mm -hmm. So maybe right effort is also not going so much that you're burning yourself out. I I would add uh, an idea in terms of wise effort to approach things with a with a curiosity and a conscious thoughtfulness about the the degrees to which something that we're doing from an effort standpoint is helpful or not helpful. It, it's, it's just trying to be engaged with our being and our curiosity and our conscious choices rather and responding rather than reacting. Yeah. So the next one is right mindfulness. And to me, this just means being to some degree, just continually trying to be aware, right? Trying to be awake, trying to be one who is observing the world and sitting with that observation as you're responding to it. Any other thoughts there on that one? Yeah. I mean, for me, I think the key to mindfulness is two things. It's it's the awareness and being present in the moment to really be able to witness and see what is happening in your life. But also the the non-judgment piece is key. It's being able to see what is happening without the judgment. I mean, our minds go so quickly to judgment. Our egoic thinking centers are wired for judgment comparison. Um, it, if, if we are in default mode, that's the mode we're in. And so this does take practice of mindfulness. And there's a power in being able to see things um, and notice what's happening without judgment. This is where you get that power that you were talking about earlier, Bill, to respond rather than react. It, it all comes down to that. And there's so many studies. I mean, I've done presentations on mindfulness and I have slides worth of benefits that are both psychological and physiological to mindfulness. This is such a powerful tool. Love it. Love it. Anything else there? If not, yeah, to me, please go ahead. To me, that was the piece that was, um, I think he said the word steadiness of being. And that's when you start walking in the world where you're kind of the eye of the storm. So, like, just chaos, right? Our lives, I mean, there's thousands of pieces moving around us all the time. And when you, um, especially if you de- develop rituals in your life where you're constantly coming back to yourself, it develops this kind of eye of the storm way of walking through life that can just give you a lot of steadiness and peace. 
um, as we go through such chaos and such impermanence in this thing that we call life. Yeah, and the earlier metaphor that I gave, the example of the dog, just like the dog experiences more peace as the dog is engaged with the owner, we can experience more peace in this in the midst of all the chaos as we are more engaged and attentive to our being and our mindfulness to things. Mm, love it. Love it. You guys are gonna have to help me out with this last one. It is right samadhi. And I don't I don't know what necessarily that means. Can any of you guys kind of help me nail down number eight? Yeah, so I have some thoughts about this. He he talked about it. He's the word concentration in it. It's wise concentration, which can be misunderstood to say, well, I'm going to get hyper-focused on this thing, whatever this thing is. But it's a very specific type of concentration in the contemplative um, strains, not just Buddhism. Um, it's, it's, it's almost speaking to uh, the kind of... Um, of awareness we're holding while we are deeply in meditation, which in, in uh, Cynthia Brojeau in uh, from the living school, she talks about it as objectless awareness. So it's not hyper-focus on something. It is concentration in just letting your mind be incredibly open. Um, you know, he talks about some of the words he uses are relaxation, trust, and connection with that, which is timeless. So this one is a really hard one to put into words because it is more of an experience than it is, you know, it's it's one of those ineffable experiences that they're pointing to in this mm. um, objectless awareness space. Love it. I'm going to have to sit and think about that more. That's, that's a good way to describe it. I, I'm like, I'm just having trouble grasping at it. So I, I appreciate the language you put to it. Anybody else on this one? The the meditations that helped me for the word kind of words he was talking about and experience he was talking about here is the ones where, um, you know, you do a body scan and then you focus on just your listening and then you focus on just your sight and then you focus on, um, you know, kind of the ground and the world around you and, and, and you do these kind of in a row and then you try to do them all at once, right? So I'm aware of my body and the sounds coming in and what I'm seeing and what I'm feeling, my inner and outer world. And to sit with all of it together where, where one isn't kind of too loud over the other. They're all just sensory things coming in. Like that kid in the background is screaming is a sensory thing I am getting into my ear, right? And just kind of being able to sit with all of it at once. And so those meditations where you focus one at a time and then bring it all together have been really helpful for that kind of meditation. Wow, love it. Those are both great. Yeah, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, uh, entrepreneurs get exposed to many different opportunities and, and they get to a point in their uh, business or their life where they have too many opportunities to consider. And so they need to go through a process of filtering their opportunities to determine where they're going to focus, where they're going to concentrate. And that includes letting go of some opportunities that might be pretty amazing, but they're not the ones that are most helpful for the person to concentrate on. And when with this wise concentration, that's kind of what I thought about is we have all these different things that we can do. So with some thoughtfulness and curiosity and consciousness, how are we going to figure out the things or the combination of things that we're going to concentrate on um, and be okay with letting go some of the opportunities or things out there that that would be that would overload us because we couldn't concentrate on the things that we need to concentrate on. 
Beautiful. Beautiful, the three of you. Uh, Janice Bangler, Brittany Hartley, Anthony Miller, thank you so much for this conversation. I'm really excited about number two. I'm going to go listen to chapter two again for about the fifth time and, uh, and make the best of uh, listening to it and taking some notes and, and kind of getting ready for that conversation. But thank you so much. I hope, listeners, you enjoyed it. Uh, this was another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. Thank you to each of you. <laughs>